rolling for January 30th, 2024. I'm Steve Fodor. You know what? I am. I'm sugary chip has some blood. Oh, you're so sweet. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. The end of the month of January, January has gone by like a shot this week, this month, this year, this year is already rolling chip. It is. And we're very lucky because we're going to pay them on today, Steve. Yes. We can look forward to a little knowledge. Little Pamador. Film at 11. Brings you to our film at 11, our movie of the week. You have been watching The Masters of the Air. This is a mini series on Apple TV all about uh, those flying fortresses of World War II. Yeah, it's on Apple TV Plus. The uh, first two uh, parts of this series, uh, Band of Brothers and Pacific, were on HBO. Uh, and they were part of Plato, which is Tom Hanks, and Steven Spielberg's Amblin. Uh, both have part of this. And did you ever watch uh, Band of Brothers or The Pacific, Steve? I am aware of both of them. I've never watched those. I don't tend to watch war movies. I, I don't get the joy of the history out of those. Well, Band of Brothers was based off a book, and so was The Pacific. Uh, Masters of the Air also has a book that it's based on. Band of Brothers dealt with infantry and the army during World War II on the on the invasion of uh, of Europe and basically defeating Germany. The Pacific dealt with the Pacific and the fight with Japan, and it was Marines. Um, this is, uh, well, what would become the Air Force, but it was the Army Air Corps is what it was and um we got the first two episodes they dropped last friday every week from now on we'll get a single uh episode and i think there's um there may be eight in total uh so far it's incredibly good you 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 get a real connection of what it was to be uh on an airplane during i mean once again you need to remember we're probably 35 years into airplanes uh, at that point when World War II starts. So this is still new technology. One of the things they do real well in this is showing you how um, we we watch airplanes. And and when you fly in an airplane, you you may not realize all the mechanical parts that go into getting these things to fly. Um, this is very, very good. How dangerous it is. And imagine flying through bombs just bursting all around you. Well, you really get the idea of the danger. And in fact, the first episode talks a lot about the danger of that. And then another episode talks a little bit about uh, how physically demanding this is to a person. Um, frostbite is, you know, is something that's, you're, you're in the air, you're very high. It's very cold. People get injured who are on the plane. You got bullets flying through your airplane as you have to go on your mission. I have high expectations on how this will play out. The other um, Apple TV Plus series that I've seen this year have all been very good. It's a very good service. Um, If you want to wait a couple of weeks, if you, you don't have this, and want to subscribe, then you'll be able to catch all of this, and you can uh, do stuff like Ted Lasso and The Morning Show and all the other wonderful shows that they certainly, they're just, they're very top level type of shows. Still trying to get that traction. Apple TV Plus is still uh, one of those that maybe you have and maybe you don't. It's very interesting to see how great they are making these shows and then getting people to watch them is is a challenge. Well, your issue is, is you, as a consumer, you want to rotate these. Mm Mm-hmm. Have Netflix for a couple uh, months, you know, have HBO for or Max for a couple months, have uh, some of the other ones. Many people fail to recognize that um, Apple TV Plus is the Apple TV service that's available to you. It's an app out there. You know, when it started a few years ago, there just wasn't very much available. 
but there's a lot that's available, very high quality stuff, enjoyable things. Anyway, this is another program that should entice you to, to joining for a period of time. Masters of the Air, it is, once again, very good. Then you got to see the documentary Kubrick by Kubrick. This was put out in 2020, talking all about the the legend Stanley Kubrick. It is. And in fact, that was one of the challenges I had this this week is going to the movie theater. Hmm. Um, there's a few movies out there that I haven't seen, uh, The Book of Clarence, The Beekeeper, and things of that nature. But it really is kind of a dead week as far as, in my opinion, for movies that I would have interest. You remember last week we had so many right. that were out there. But it just seems that we just don't have the cadence of a, a weekly movie that just is a must-see. And uh, so I just looked online and see, you know, found something I had not seen. This is a documentary. I had not heard Stanley Kubrick have a conversation before. Interesting. Or that I remembered. Mm-hmm. Anyway, his voice is totally different than he looks. And he is just a brilliant, brilliant man. In fact, one of the conversations that uh, we learn is he's got all these art books and things of that nature. And um, he cuts them up. He cuts them out. He's cutting out all the pictures of them. He's placing them down. When he's doing scenes, he wants these colors or these hues. When they're doing costumes, he wants it to be from you know this costume. He's just such a detailed, thoughtful person at putting together his movies. And um, a lot of effort is put into them. A lot of interviews with the actors. The, he has a lot of playfulness when he talks to actors where he's like, I'm looking for this, and the actor doesn't feel like it's working the way it wants to. He goes, no, 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 I'm seeking in your eyes. This is this is what I'm looking for. And so a lot of actors want to work with him. If you're Shelley Duvall, he may break you. Yeah, in order um, to get that performance, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, um, he's he's a special movie maker or was a special movie maker, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are all sorts of stories about that. This is a, a documentary, I'll say 55 out of 100. Finding more information about those creative people and how they became those creative people and put out such fascinating films. The Kubrick films are legendary and his style is very different from everybody else's. And yes, there are those stories of the actors being tortured by his style and hearing it from his point of view is, is intriguing to me. So Steve, I wasn't the only person who got to watch some things. Tell me a little bit about what you watched this week. I have, I, I paused watching full house and watched a cartoon this week, Chip. This is the most ridiculous conversation I've had all week. I watched Scooby-Doo and crypto Two. This is a new cartoon on HBO max, bringing all of the nostalgia of the late 1970s, early 1980s cartooning to a new audience. And when I say a new audience, I don't know that any kids are watching this. I think this is all for middle-aged people. Frank Welker comes back as the voice of Freddy and (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Matthew Lillard has taken up the voice of Shaggy. He played Shaggy in the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. And Kate Micucci is Velma in this. This is just a nostalgia trip. Looking at all of the silly cameo things that have been done in both Scooby-Doo and the Justice League and the Super Friends. We get Super Friends references up and down this movie. We get Scooby-Doo references. We get all the guest appearances that you expect. And it is a fun adventure. Just just go with it. It's a fun adventure. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) or watch something more adult that's fine (laughs) brings us to our book it our book of the week it is the end of the month and it is time for our monthly book club good morning pam bedore Good morning, guys. How's it going? It's going very well. So glad to see you. Happy New Year. 
Happy New Year. We're practically halfway through this year. Okay, so this is my big question. It's halfway through this year already. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it's been a long month. This is my question. When you see somebody for the first time in a new year, do you still say Happy New Year? Is Even if it's July? 100%. Uh, uh, of course. I yeah. always do. Of course. <laughs> And when is Chinese New Year, Steve? We got to get prepared. It's in February. I'm I'm already prepared. (laughs) Our book this month is In Flux, written by Daniel Suarez. This book was written in 2014, and I've been waiting to talk about this one for almost 10 years at this point. This is a very interesting story for me. The idea here is that we, the community of people have limited technology. And the reason we have limited technology is because there is a government agency that has been actively keeping technology out of the grasp of the people for decades. And the technological advances that they have access to, we don't. The Bureau of Technology Control says that humans shouldn't have such things because it will disrupt the natural course of humanity. What an interesting concept to begin with, right, Pam? It really, really is. And right at the beginning, when our hero, John Grady, learns about the Bureau of Technology Control, the head guy, whose name I've now forgotten, um, tells him that we actually it's it's the problem with with progress isn't technology it's human nature. So we have the ability to create all kinds of incredible technological innovation, but human nature just can't catch up to our technology. And it's so funny because it's a 10-year-old novel, but um, this is something we're still totally thinking about today, right? Is to what degree does our technology change us? Can it change who we are? Do we want it to change human nature? Is human nature even like a stable concept? Is that just a social construction? I mean, this book really, really, really raises an entire series of important ethical questions that are just as relevant or more today as they were in 2014. And I've been thinking about this for 10 years. I've been thinking about this for 10 years since I read this book, and I I really wanted to get your perspective. Chip, what do you think? Well, how parental. How, how this idea that some people know better than other people on how other people should live. Boy, there seems to be a lot of control issues here. It's a huge statement about control and government overreach, for sure. Well, and I think the idea of the paternalistic state that makes decisions without telling us there was even a decision made, it also, maybe even more in 2024 than in 2014, it feeds into these real questions about conspiracy, Mm -hmm. right? This Mm -hmm. notion of a deep state that has some sort of control the rest of us don't even know exists. And so it does feel, I mean, the politics of this book are all over the place (laughs) and they really, they really tap into, you know, many, many of the anxieties that people have all across the political spectrum. Only the smart people get taken away. Uh, by the uh, government uh-huh. get removed that was that was the first thing i thought of when i was reading this is like jesus is like atlas shrug instead of people going on strike and volunteering to leave society that doesn't appreciate them this one is about the government coming and just plucking you away and just leaving all the dumb people to fend for themselves yeah separating these hyper-intelligent thinkers, these people who are coming up with these imaginative, innovative things and taking that away from, you know, the rest of the society. You can have this, but you can't. Mm -hmm. Wow. What what an amazing concept. And there are a couple of ideas that I think really bear some thinking about in terms of the basic premise of this novel. So one of them is the notion of the individual genius, right? And so that's a concept that a lot of people in psychology and education studies have really questioned and pushed back against, right? This notion that certain individuals, and I noticed that they were all white men um, or East Asian men, Mm -hmm. but certain individuals, um, especially from certain groups, 
might have this level of intelligence that is completely different from everyone else's. And they work with very small teams, right? And then that's sort of in some tension with the idea of more like collaborative intellectual endeavors. That's how a lot of universities are organized are around the notion that, you know, you work in large groups with with real experts, with innovation, and then with novices, as you teach people, certain certain of your students will have different perspectives. And so that idea of the individual genius is really interesting. And the notion that you could um, select individual geniuses, put them in a giant prison box, and therefore sequester their knowledge is a little bit at odds with a lot of information theory as it's happening today. And it's something that we grapple with in education at the lower levels as well, because we have always taught you need to work on this as an individual. You need to work on your quiz. Your quiz has to be your work out of your brain, and you have to prove that you did not get any help from anybody. That's not how anything works outside of education. And do you think that's still how things work inside of education? Or are we moving more and more of our assessment of students into collaborative and group work? Well, that, that may change. That may be in the, the currently changing. But yeah. if you go to you know historical um, universities, they still have the honor codes for cheating. And, you know, you're basically, you know, attesting that you have not received any help during this period. But that may change, especially as we start um, learning how to use AI and it becomes better. And it's not about necessarily the facts that you know, but it could be about assembling the things that you know. And, and I think this book talks a little bit about that, too. And of course, our assessment of students has changed since the lack of a need for trivia Trivia is no longer education. And knowing that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 is no longer a thing to be proud of because you can find trivia easily. We have access to all this information. AI is going to revolutionize that again. And once again, in education, I am afraid of the sources. How do we know that this is factual? When the kids are spewing out this fact, what is their basis for this factual declaration? That's I keep trying to press my button here, Steve. I, I was going to say, um, what is the uh, use of AI, Alex? I think it's okay. Alexa. <laughs> Okay, so can we get into Alexa real fast? In this book, there is a character named Alexa that is an artificial person. She is not a human. She is a a, a artificially, uh, not cybernetic, but <clears throat> not exactly human person. And then there's an AI that's not called Alexa. And every time the character of Alexa comes up and it's talking to the AI, I'm like, wait a minute, which one's the AI? <laughs> I, I it's the Bezos one, Steve. Yeah, I get caught up in names in in writing. Well, so I think that the issue with the AI is really, really interesting. Right now, I thought Alexa was a fascinating character because uh, she is so she is an AI and she's a but she has a constructed human body. But her human body is completely constructed to be insanely hot. So everyone who meets Alexa yes. is absolutely, regardless of their normal patterns of attraction, is absolutely attracted to Alexa. And so there's this notion there that we can design a specific individual that anyone would be attracted to. And, you know, there's so much interesting work on attraction, right? How does it work? Why are some people attracted to to someone and someone else attracts someone else. How does beauty work? I mean, all of these things come come into this novel. And I remember this from the other Daniel Suarez novels we we read. Steve, he really likes to have this incredible panoply of both technological and ethical issues just kind of mingled all together. So Alexa was a really wonderful character, but. I want to, before we jump too deep into the AIs, can we go back to some of the human characters a little bit? Sure. So it strikes me that the basic premise of this novel, that 
specific individual human intelligences can be at a completely different level than others. Um, also really focuses on neurodivergence. I'm not sure he uses that word anywhere. Because we weren't using that word in 20 Exactly, 10 years ago, right? That's right. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, John Grady is neurodivergent. He's mm-hmm. specifically been um, diagnosed with synesthesia and a number of other issues. And basically, everyone who's in the complex, um, all of these sequestered geniuses, have some sort of intellectual difference that we can now map with an MRI that they have a difference in their brain. And so there is this real like notion of, you know, as we move towards the future and technological futures, certain humans are better suited to it. But also if we know how neurodivergence works, we could give it to everyone. Whoa. That's an that, that was explored right there. Interesting. I just finished a, uh, I finished a uh, story that explored that. Yeah, giving everyone that way of looking at things, that perspective of the neurodivergent way of finding patterns. Humans are so good at finding patterns that we can find patterns where there are no patterns. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, and that, that's the challenge with. Well, I mean, that's what AI is, would would attempt to kind of uh, take us out of because those are our biases. You know, you're all you know, all of a sudden you're looking for something, and interestingly enough, you found what you were looking for, even though it's not. It's you know maybe it's a, some kind of a confirmation bias or something. Right. But but with John Grady, I feel like his story is so interesting because he has this really specific neurodivergence. Um, He's specifically working on gravity. And you guys, how much do you think of some sort of like anti-gravity or the gravity elevator? Is this a technology you think about very much in your lives? All the time. In fact, I discuss it every night. (laughs) (laughs) It's the gravity of our conversations (laughs) i would say no gravity is just a given in in most of our conversations we don't think about how we can fight against gravity it's it's the law we can't fight against it so yes the superpower that would be the ability to fight against that becomes a very powerful tool in this story and i would say it's no accident that john grady's expertise is in messing with gravity, right? Because the three of us think about technology all the time, but we tend to think about AI. (laughs) We think about nuclear technologies, fission, fusion. We think about all of these technologies that we already know we can manipulate, but we just accept gravity as a constant, Mm -hmm. you know? And we just accept that even the term neurotypical neurodivergent, it's so funny, forgive an anecdote, but one of my kids said to me the other day, do you think I'm neurodivergent? And I was like, no, I don't think so, sweetie. Like, you know, this is a kid that's never had, you know, any learning disabilities or mental health questions or anything like that. And she was really offended. Hmm. Um, you know, well, we all want to be special. Right. I mean, certainly. And I, and I say that in, in a, not, not judging, I'm just saying that we all want to, if we could all just kind of point, well, the reason I'm this why is because, you know, I'm so much different you know, more different and in a, um, in a, in a, in a positive way, maybe. Well, and I almost felt like she heard that, like I was saying she wasn't creative, which of course mm-hmm. isn't what I was saying, but, but you guys as middle-aged people, 10 years ago, I would not have had that conversation with someone 15 years ago, not even, it wouldn't have even, you know, the, we wouldn't have even used the word neurodivergent. So in a sense, I feel like what Suarez does in this book that's so brilliant is he has this sort of this narrative around a a bunch of neurodivergent characters, but then what they're questioning is something that we consider so fundamental, the law of gravity, not the theory of gravity, the law of gravity, right? And and flips that literally upside down as as people use this anti-gravity technology to, to leave the earth, to go in an opposite direction than the vertical directionality we're so used to. 
It's absolutely well, brilliant. I, that is the thing he focuses on because we know what we can change. We know what we can adapt. And the magic trick of that is is very much impossible in our thinking. I, I was at a talk, this is 10 years ago or so, and I um you know, I have an economic background. The uh, person running it is a philosopher and writes on philosophy. And we had a rocket scientist, like an honestly got rocket scientist. And uh, you had kids around that are asking questions. All we wanted to do was listen to the rocket scientist. So we all could be smart. But at some point, you go like, wow, this is just on a whole different level. <laughs> and there's this group of people who are just, um, that doesn't mean they get to make the decisions on, you know, maybe how, how the roads get done or, or how we should organize society, but they just think on a different level and they're fascinating and we are gravitate, you know, we gravitate to them, interestingly right. enough, um, <laughs> because we're all focused on this issue over here. They're you know, four or five, they're, they're pl not playing one-dimensional chess, they're playing 12-dimensional chess. It's just on a whole different level. And, and that's where I came to this book. For most of my life, I've been intrigued by innovation, and most of that I found in consumer electronic gadgets. That's been my life, is looking at the intrigue and the innovation of, oh, look, now we've got a portable computer that we can put in our pocket. But now, as, as that becomes more and more normal, as that is the normality, I'm looking at the science on the micro level that is just fascinating to me how we have gotten down to the the building blocks of everything and the science there is where my current fascination lies well and you guys i think all three of us share this steve this is one of the reasons that we enjoy talking with one another is that we all share this excitement and enthusiasm for, for new technologies and new scientific approaches to the world, new epistemologies. But are you guys familiar with Nick Bostrom's black ball hypothesis? It's sometimes called the vulnerable world hypothesis. No. Tell us about it. Please tell us. <laughs> you know, we talked about Nick Bostrom not that long ago with the simulation hypothesis. So his black ball hypothesis is that every new technology that occurs is either a white ball, which is really pretty positive, a gray ball that has positive and negatives, or a black ball. And he says, we're really lucky that we haven't pulled a black ball out of the technology bingo shoot yet. Mm. But we've pulled out a lot of gray balls, right? Like nuclear power is one, <laughs> right? So it has some very positives and some very negatives. He well, there are some people experiencing war situations right now that would argue with them. Um... Everything's some on the, the table for them. Some of the drone technology that we've created there is certainly very dark in its uh, possibilities. And well, so, I'm not just talking drone um, statements, but there are rules of engagement that you know some people are saying that others are not using. But if we're sticking to technology, yeah, a bomb is technology. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and so so Bostrom talks about the idea that. Right now, like our darkest gray technologies still require a lot of power to use in a very destructive way, right? So, you know, there's like, we have, we've seen the movies and there's some anxiety about just like individuals being able to build a nuclear bomb, but we're not exactly there. But he says, what if someone builds a technology where you could basically create the destruction of the world by putting an object in a microwave and hitting play, right? Mm. Like that would be a black ball technology. And he thinks there's no way we don't get one of those at some point, like a technology that will be world ending. Unless we have a government agency that is protecting us from exactly. right. And so he's like, so uh, Oh, how interesting. <laughs> the government's <laughs> going to protect us. The government <laughs> didn't protect these people. Right. But I'm just saying that I think that Daniel Suarez, like this novel is very, very much a narrative that explores Nick Bostrom's um, philosophical argument about the black ball hypothesis. 
Absolutely. Sure. And some people seem to know better than others on what we should do. How interesting. Certain people. How, certain how, people. Those smart people, they're always there to protect us. And I'm going to say, so John Brady is a really, really interesting um, central uh, protagonist or hero here because he doesn't break. Now, I really had, I'm going to say, I'm probably going to do this novel with at least one book group. I might teach it at some point, but I'm going to have to give a trigger warning on chapter eight. Man, that torture was brutal, 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 over the top. And I have to admit, like for me, torture is really hard to read. Um, I know there are lots of things that I can read and be like, ooh, how interesting, but torture, man, it's not, it's, it's a rough one. So I would definitely offer a chapter eight trigger warning. Do you guys think that torture was necessary for the narrative? I had the same reaction when I was reading this. Yeah. And it just shows how cruel that people can be with the, with each other. And, you know, not to use the worst situation all the time, but you know, we have war going on and there are people that have information and there are people trying to get that information and they're going to be willing to do uh, unnatural things to get it. And I just, I get very, very uncomfortable reading about it, seeing people experience it. You know, it's just, it's just um, movies with torture scenes. They really, they really bother me because Mm -hmm. um, they're cruel. They, they are dehumanizing and they're, they're and, incredibly cruel. And obviously that's what we're talking about is the dehumanization of this character. That is the purpose of this whole scene is to take away his humanity, to take away all that he knows so that he will comply with whatever they're asking him to do. Is that necessary to the narrative? It's sort of. I mean, I think yes, it is right. Even though, right? man, oh man. And again, I if like I teach it, this, I, I always provide like a, if you would like to skip the following, here's what you need to know. So I would definitely provide like a chapter eight, two, two line summary. John undergoes intensive and creative torture by artificial intelligences who have I, so much more ability to continue torture beyond the human limits chapter eight is torture beyond physical torture there's the there's the mental cruelty the just the idea of reflecting his own voice back to him is enough to create a scenario in his head where he cannot think while his own voice is the voice that is torturing him i i I enjoy the way that the author was able to put that together i do not enjoy (laughs) the torture Uh, you just learned something about steve Um, Steve. (laughs) Steve. mental torture mental torture is just as bad as physical torture that was disturbing yeah but we know you know solitary confinement is torture we know that that's the reason why you know maybe a prison uses that or people who are incredibly disruptive, or any number of things. Mm-hmm. Um, we know those things happen. What does the AI or this this government group decide to do? They put them all in solitary confinement. And the question is, is how do they keep their sanity during that time? It is just, um, there's the cruelty of putting them on an island, making them stay there for periods of time, you know. Um, and then checking in on him every once in a while and feeding him the, the amount he needs or whatever. When he wakes up and finds out what they have done to his body with a um, and the cruelty of uh, you know of taking away memories, taking away um, oh, his humanity. Um, there was and, he, and the idea that he could still he still fought, which is ultimately what ends up happening if you find out there is a rule to the game humans will adjust their behavior so this is very much about grady's resiliency right i would say like and that's so not only is grady like neurodivergent in terms of his intelligence but i would say his resilience is at a much higher level than he's a mary sue I agree with that. I, I I was thinking that this character is way too good at all of these things automatically. That that concept of the Mary Sue, that character that is 
so fitted for the story that they are <laughs> so good at everything that comes at them. Yeah. So then without too many spoilers, I did want to note that halfway through the novel, we do get a main character death, you know, of someone whose perspective we've shared several times and who's, you know, feels like a character that's coming together. And I, I will just admit that I love main character death. I think it's so, it's so shocking and surprising and you're breaking the contract with the reader and I just love it. But in this case, I felt like the death of the human character was essential because our real hero sitting behind the human character is an AI, right? Mm -hmm. And so, which brings us back to Alexa and Varuna. So we have the embodied AI in Alexa's like perfect, perfectly attractive body. And then we have the cyber With pheromones. With pheromones, <laughs> um, which apparently work on absolutely everyone. Um, and then- <laughs> in 2014 we, they did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we have Varuna, the cybernetic AI. Um, and it's really, this really brings us to huge questions for, for 2024, which is, you know, do we think that AIs are going to, that that artificial intelligence in general is going to surpass us in all things, including ethical reasoning, mm. right? Because Alexa and Varuna have much better ethical reasoning than the people who created them. And they make very stark decisions based on that ethical reasoning. The ethical reasoning of the the BTC, we are going to protect you from this technology because, and they lay out the scenario of how this would really disrupt everything on the planet. These two AI, these two differently thinking people, and, and I use the word people incorrectly in that sentence. I No, I think they are people. They have a different... Do they have a soul? Ethics. Do they sleep? Do I have a soul? Do I sleep? I don't know. No, you don't <laughs> sleep. I sleep. <laughs> I got that down. No, I was thinking more sleep. like Philip K. Dick. I know. I know. <laughs> And, and I'm sorry to derail your, your statement, but wasn't it with Google a couple of years ago that they had two AIs start talking to each other and then creating their own language? They were they were instructed to communicate with each other. They were instructed to create their own language. And then when they were so successful at that experiment that the, the, the scientists were like, we don't know what they're talking about anymore. They were fearful of that and they shut that down. But that was the experiment. That was the idea. The future of AI is certainly on the minds of people in 2024. This is one of the things that when I read this book in 2014, I didn't love this book. I didn't get into the action adventure of this book because that's not my genre. But now, 10 years mm -hmm. later, reading this a second time for this book club, he was on the right track for where we were headed in the future. He really was. And, you know, one of the questions that really bothered me throughout, and the reason it bothers me is because I totally can't figure it out. When John does his great escape from Hibernity and he's got his little flash drive or whatever with all the information, I'm like, give it to the New York Times, right? Like, why are you giving that to the FBI when you know that this is a government agency that's working with governmental security. Why are you going to go find an FBI agent? Hmm. Just give it to the press, right? Is Get the information the out there. Assuming is the, the press, press is still around. <laughs> is the press in 2024 the investigative journalist that they were in 2014? So there's that piece of it too. But then I wonder if John himself has some anxiety, even though he has completely withstood absurd levels of torture for his ethical notion that information should be free to mm. everyone. Is there a part of him? If he truly believed that, he would have put that online. He would have gone, he would have, he would have found a way, and it's not that complicated, to mm. share that file, right? If, WikiLeaks, if AI, whatever, right? That, that's what cotton was for, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, if the AI is in the media, if the AI is able to remove that story, to to debunk that myth of that conspiracy, would that work? You know what I'm saying? Like, did you feel like John might have had his own? Like, I feel like everything John said was information must be free. Mm-hmm. But what he did did not feel like it matched that. And I thought we were supposed to notice this difference between his actions and mm. his ethical ideas. So, so let me clarify. Cotton was a person in this. For if you're listening and you don't know that, Cotton was uh, one of the characters. But even if I gave you the schematics for a rocket ship, would you be able to decipher it? And and that's isn't oh, that one of the, the challenges? Yeah. Even if I, and there, there's the you know, it gave you like all the the deep secret. Mm-hmm secrets mm-hmm. Uh, for for a government or an entity or a business or something the the deal is is you still have to be able to to read it having everything available doesn't mean that people are going to read it and understand it and come to um similar conclusions so you're saying that daniel suarez was writing about the conspiracy theories that came after 2014 before they started well, it's a Terminator, Steve. It's a Terminator story. <laughs> I was thinking more like QAnon, but okay. But I think those conspiracies were already nascent okay. ten years ago, right? Okay. Um, but but they were they were much less discussed and talked about. So I I mean I feel there's like a okay. huge amount of prescience in this. Maybe, maybe there wasn't an outlet for it that was as easy. You know, it's, it, in the old days, maybe you pick up some. I don't know. Uh, a copied book or a copied document or whatever. Now you just kind of throw it out and your social media just out there, and yeah. it could be a, a, about anything. And all of a sudden, you got a whole group of people. I don't have to subscribe to your newsletter anymore. <laughs> all of this talk about technology and especially AI and how programs can take over lead me always back to Daniel Suarez's other novel demon, which was such a well put together thought on how a computer program could do all these ethical things or unethical things, having a, a list of what it thinks should be done. And I'm using all of those words very loosely. All of the, all of the concepts that are put into the AI, that's really where I'm at right now in 2024, thinking through why would I give power to this program? Who wrote this program? How did this program come to these conclusions? And Daniel Suarez thinks through a lot of that. A lot of his techno thrillers talk about that innovation of technology and software, a lot more software than hardware. And this one has a, a really interesting mix. You said a really interesting thing earlier where you said that he throws everything in here. We have every sort of thing. Is this magic or is this hard science at this point? I would say total hard science. I mean, this book is all hard science, don't you think? Or do you think there's magic in it? There's there's a little bit of hand waving that goes oh, on. Sure. There's yeah. the, there's a there's a degree, especially the the gravity mirror. We know that gravity is a force. We know that we could theoretically make that happen. Uh, but there, there's quite a bit of hand waving. Uh, thinking through the physical things in this book where the software things I go, yes, that's, that is how software would work. It tries to play off hard science and, you know, we're, we're using those, but it's not always um, the idea is to explore the ideas around it. It's not necessarily to determine whether, you know, it's here or not. Whatever AI we have available to us now, we know that the research teams out there who are working with this, you know, they're two, three, four generations ahead. And if you're a, a wealthy company, you get access to something like that, like Microsoft, where we are still working with, you know, previous generation stuff. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the military also being two, three generations ahead. Uh huh. Well, that that is the whole point. I'm I'm looking at this, going, "Holy cow!" If they wanted to take someone out now, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
drones seem to be. That's a different Daniel Suarez book. That's Kill Decision. Daniel Suarez has written that book as well, where there are drones that decide who lives and who dies. Yes. Hmm. And, and one group says that this group's bad, and the other group says that this is bad. And the AI could say both of them are bad and get rid of them all. Mm-hmm. Welcome. That's what we're afraid of is all of a sudden For sure. AI goes, we could make all this work if we just didn't have the humans. And that's Terminator. That is exactly the story of Terminator is, is that AI gains sentience and decides it's going to end war. And the way to end war is to kill all the humans. Yes. If you had all the, the time in the world, Steve, just don't break your glasses. <laughs> So I actually was wondering if you guys think this would make a good movie. I've struggled with that idea. I've struggled yeah. with that thought a lot. There is so much that is hand waving them. The, the, <laughs> the Hibernity prison where they imprison people in a solid rock. They melt <laughs> a rock and they put this prisoner into this cell in a solid rock is is highly unlikely. Like what kind of materials would we need to melt a rock and not melt the cell that we're putting into the melt? Huge advances in material sciences, John Grady says. Of course, that's the premise. <laughs> of course, that's the premise. Um, there, there's certainly an action adventure piece to this. When I introduced this to you at the beginning of the month, I said, okay, I'm going to give you this book. It's more Michael Crichton adventure than it is technological thought experiment but it's both so if you did make a movie out of this and certainly i agree with you michael crichton would be a good person to compare this book to yeah. um, a screenwriter is going to make choices on this and he's going to say this is an action movie um where another person could say this is a philosophical movie or some other type of um uh genre and that would be that would take away some of, of this movie and any person watching the movie good or bad will say ah oh, the book's better something of that nature because you get more exploration in the book i think demon so, would make a better movie than this mm -hmm. i could see that yeah. i could see that yeah and chip you thought of it as a comic book i did i it got to, it got to the point like i'm, I'm listening to it uh, as I'm doing my walking and stuff like that. And um, it just, I kept thinking Atlas Shrugged, uh, Ayn Rand, and where it's, the, the, the difference is, is the people go and strike and they find their Atlantis and set up their world. This is where uh, the government basically pulls people out to set up their world. Um, and it just, both of them have this sort of comic book feel to them. There is a um, there's a story there. There's some explorations there, but um, Suarez certainly um, made choices that, that just they just registered as when I say comic book like. They, I don't know if they're um, hero and villain and stuff like that. If there's more gray area and stuff like that, but regardless, I just it, to me I, I just read like a comic book. And I think the dialogue is very tight, so I feel like it would. I, I like oh, yeah. the comic. I like the comic book idea better than the movie idea, in a way. If you were going to move this to a different form, I would probably go with a comic book rather than a movie. And I do love how Daniel Suarez can pull comedy into that dialogue as well. There are some very silly things that he writes in there. My favorite that I wrote down, oh, it's the deputy director. Oh, of the FBI? No, of Greece, the musical. The sarcasm <laughs> is... Yeah. is thick this is definitely a writer of a certain age that i i absolutely adore his writing style and to the audiobook the audio narrator is phenomenal i Excellent. love the sound of his voice and the way that he gives all of the characters different voice you could almost feel that one guy was indian from india I and uh cotton must have been from the south i mean i just kind of feel that way i, I think that <laughs> i think that jeff gurner does such a great job with audio narrating he is the audio narrator for all of daniel suarez's books so yes once again i think about demon while i'm yes. reading this book and jeff gurner <laughs> is one of my top favorite narrators he, he's a master and truly truly his master this and uh, um anyway 
Well, and especially when when Cotton actually changes his accent and it still sounds like him, but had changed his accent. I mean, that's really, really virtuosic audio narration, you guys. That was impressive work. Agreed. <laughs> so should we go to the ending of this novel? There's an <laughs> ending to this novel, Pam? Wow. Whoa, the ending to this novel. Guys, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> Because, I mean, there's some little bit of uh, hand wavy science business going on throughout, but man, this ending, it was, it, it might have been a little too sweet for me. I don't know. Would you rather a dark ending on this one? Would would that match up with the story a little bit better instead of the the Mary Sue, this character is so special, he is able to be successful? You know, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, like, I mean, I'm genuinely torn about this because, of course, it's nice to see a happy ending always. But this ending, you know, you you actually like you have I'm spoiling here, guys, but you actually have our gorgeous AI and our neurodivergent main, main character. They're going to they're going to fulfill both of their dreams which is to have a child. And you're like... Wait a second, wait a second. Let me get, I'm so sorry. Let me get a tissue for that. Exactly, oh right? And oh. we also, we'll name the child after our dead AI friend. You know, I don't know. It's... It didn't match. I think I think you're exactly right, Steve, that it's it's not a bad ending to a different novel, but I, I don't think... Considering all of the interesting like ethical conundra that have been mm -hmm. raised throughout this, are we really going to say, and this is literally an HEA, a happily ever after ending, the kind you put in a romance novel. Literally. Like, is this suitable I mean, to a techno thriller? I don't know. Yet. I don't know. How, how would Stephen King end this book? Not. And then it was Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> With a giant spider. No, but anyway. So so yeah, I'm just not sure about this ending, you guys. I I I'm mixed. I have mixed feelings about it. There's a certain hopefulness that I like. And the idea that we might one day actually reproduce with AIs so that we would still like maybe that's the way maybe like that's the way we keep humanity alive in the face of creating technology that will like surpass us within decades um maybe maybe actually you know reproduction with ethical ais is like a great future but it was just presented as such a like HEA that I don't know. It really, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you that, that it was not a satisfying ending. It, 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 in the perfection of AI, she is a perfect being. And in the amazing perfection of our Mary Sue main character, of course, there's a perfect happily ever after. I, I, I get it, but no, it's not satisfying. The next book stars Varuna. No, no, people <laughs> to this book. Thankfully, this is a one. Alexa two. Alexa two. <laughs> Alexa Grady. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> All right. So you've said already that you would teach this. You would use this in some way. Totally recommend this book. It opens up a million super interesting conversations. I would also provide a substantial trigger warning on the torture scenes. Chip, would you recommend this one to anyone? Yeah, I enjoyed this film. Uh, this film, I enjoyed this <laughs> book. I enjoyed this story. It's uh, and I think it was correct to say it's Michael Crichton like. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you enjoy going through this and you want to pop read, this is a good pop read. And and I really changed my mind about this in the last ten years. I have I read this ten years ago. I have not discussed this on the show for ten years because I did not like this book ten years ago. But coming at it a second time, looking at it with a different perspective, ten years later, this has so many of the issues that we are dealing with right now. And Daniel Suarez throws everything at us and has us think through those ethics in such a way that I think that this has a lot to say. And I would recommend a lot of people read this one after they read demon demon is still my favorite of the daniel suarez novels 
I mean, listen, lounging around that pool or that beach is just not going to be the same without a good book. With the torture scene. Well, we want to get rid of the torture scene. <laughs> if we got rid of the torture scene, skip chapter eight. That is our recommendation. Torture happened, wasn't good. There you go. Don't recommend. There you go. That's Influx, published in 2014 by Daniel Suarez. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things happening in the world. We need to talk about some of them. Uh, one of the headlines this week, probably everybody knows, John Stewart is returning to The Daily Show. After nine years of not hosting The Daily Show, John Stewart is returning to his comedy news program. Well, it seems ready for, maybe maybe this is for the year. Seems like Ready a, for to talk about the election year. Correct. Seems like a good year for Jon Stewart's voice to be a part of the conversation again. He had a show in between on Apple TV Plus, The Problem with Jon Stewart, and it was a different style of humor, different style of conversation, very hard-hitting, in-depth conversation. The Daily Show is much more shallow level, but his voice is uh, a welcome return here. Did you ever watch The Daily Show? A little bit. Okay. I, I enjoy the daily show a lot. Now that we are in the post cable lifestyle, I need to find how I'm going to watch the daily show. And I, and I, I'm ready. I'm ready for Jon Stewart to return but only on Mondays. It's a, it's going to be a weekly Jon Stewart daily show. The rest of the week is going to be guest hosts. Mr. Beast is a big part of my students' uh, media right now, and he is trying to find his way in 2024. He took up Elon Musk's offer to put a video on X this week. Well, it wasn't this week. It was a few weeks ago. And he promised to divulge how much he earned from blowing up some cars is really what it came down to. Mr. Beast is kind of um, known as a nice person on the Internet. He He's bought surgeries for people. He gives away money. He's kind of this philanthropic type of guy that, um, you know, he may, he may hand you 500 bucks. He may hand you $10,000. Hmm. doesn't really matter. But it's something that young people are watching. Usually they're watching through YouTube. Elon Musk basically sent out a statement uh, or a request for him. Hey, throw it through X. Throw it through Twitter. Let's see what ends up happening he earned $263,000 of it hmm. uh, from his video. Um, and it was just a test. He's testing it out on another service, too. Anyway, you know where Mr. Beast is based out of, Steve? Uh, I'm going to guess North Carolina, Chip. North Carolina, Steve. Greenville, North Carolina. There you go. There you go. Speaking of North Carolina, Steve. The city of Asheville uh, bought five electric buses in 2018 and tried to see what it would be like to have those vehicles on the road. It seems to not be working out the way they expected. Yeah, they, they bought five. Um, and you have to remember, this is new, newer technology. Asheville is an area certainly um, more likely than other areas to want to have electric vehicles, mm -hmm. electric buses. Well, they found that uh, three of the five they bought are always idle. They're just not working. Mm. So they're really struggling with this. And uh, anyway, the the, the um, spokesperson for the city of the of Asheville, uh, Kim Miller, said that they, they're just not going to be doing any more of those right now until the technology improves itself. And, and we've had a few stories about how electric vehicles have been struggling in uh, as of late. But pushing forward, the technology will improve, and we'll see where we go with that for the future. Steve, what if we wanted to watch something blow up? It blowed up real good. Northwestern's Ryan Field is being demolished this week, and you can watch all of the action of this football field being removed from the uh, area of, of the northern area of Chicago here, Northwestern University. Yeah, you have to go over to Evanston, and you can go over to the university. And if you have never been to a, a football game there, it's a lovely place to to watch a football game. But they're going to have a brand new modern field, Steve, Boy. and it's going to go up there. But you can go and watch them blow up the other one. Yeah, this week. What? How exciting! 
That's so exciting. Don't you love watching a little bit of demolition when it goes right? And, and when they, when they do it right and it, it works, it's fascinating. So a few weeks ago, Steve, we interviewed the, um, the museum in, in Durham, North Carolina, and about their uh, video exploration of the COVID years. Do you have anything that on a national level could interest us, Steve? I am so interested in what the Library of Congress is creating. They are going to do something very similar to what the Durham History Museum did and create an exhibit around the history of the COVID pandemic. What happened? What was it like? What was life like in those years? We have a lot of stories and sharing those stories on a national level, creating an exhibit that we can share so that we hopefully can learn something from what we did right and what we did wrong during that pandemic. So Steve, um, do you remember which president um, helped um, create the Library of Congress, whose, whose, whose library was the basis of the Library of Congress? No, Chip. Who, which president do we, do we give credit for here? It's Thomas Jefferson's library. There you go. It was his library that um, was the basis. The U.S. bought his collection um, for, for some reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, that's how the Library of Congress got started, Steve. Excellent. Keeping our history is important. Keeping knowledge from the past is important. And looking back sometimes is super important. As much as I look forward to uh, our science fiction future. Well, Steve, history is on the, uh, the table right now because, you know, February 1st starts a special month. Yep. Happy Black History Month to everybody celebrating in February, looking back at some of that history, thinking through what we're doing today and how we can build the future from that history. Groundhog Day is on Friday. Uh, Time to head out to Woodstock, Illinois and see the groundhog or to, you know, wherever you're, your local groundhog. Consult your local groundhog for the weather report on Friday. Well, you, you never know who's going to show up, Steve. There could be a weather report. <laughs> the rodent that predicts the weather. <laughs> You've got so much going on. It's time to take a little break and take. Would you like a donut, Chip? Steve, I'm out there to challenge the world to go out and run with me during the Krispy Kreme challenge, Steve. Every year we seem to be talking about this. Coming up this February 3rd on Saturday, I'm going to be out there early in the morning dressed appropriately. Of course. I'm going to start at the Bell Tower at North Carolina State University. I'm going to go two and a half miles to the local Krispy Kreme. I'm going to eat a dozen donuts, Steve. And then I'm going to turn back and I'm going to run back to that Bell Tower two and a half miles. That's five miles, Steve. Five miles, one hour, 12 donuts, 2,400 calories. This this sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to uh, dress as the god Diabetes. Wilford Brimley? <laughs> you're going to meet a lot of interesting people out at the Krispy Kreme Challenge this week. People come from all over the world, Steve. But you know what? After I'm re- I'm recovering on Sunday from that, you know, that hard race, you know, it's important to like, yeah, stay uh, stay up with the local important things that are going on, how how things have changed for a certain demographics, Dave. Yeah, culture. We we talk a lot about pop culture on this show and the pop culture one of the big things in 2024 is pickleball. Have you been playing pickleball, Chip? No, Steve, but a lot no? of people I know who are a different demographic are Older people, older people are playing pickleball, kind of like tennis without all that, you know, running. (laughs) It's kind of like table tennis and tennis all together. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? We got a million dollar purse that's going to be available. And Pickleball Slam 2 is going to be on Sunday, February 4th. We've got a bunch of tennis stars, John McEnroe, Maria Sharapova uh, against Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf for the $1 million prize in, in pickleball. What a I just, I just consider these, these people, John McEnroe is from the seventies, Steve. He retired what in the early eighties. 
He's throwing his he's throwing his uh, pickleball racket down. He's trying to figure out where the line is. Are and uh, does Andre Agassi show up with hair or no hair? You never know, Steve. You never know. It's it's fascinating to watch the pickleball phenomena. There's there's so many opportunities for pickleball and so much conversation about it. It is one of those cultural icons of 2024. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think we can. It's, it'll be February. How about that? We would love to hear from you. How's it going? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on all the social medias. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflarm. Sweet. Chip has some food. That's right, little frosting. <laughs> <laughs> See you in the future. <laughs>